So let me invite you to turn to Luke chapter 1 this evening, Luke chapter 1. For generations, the people of Israel were in a time of delay. It had been 400 years since the prophecy of Malachi. And this prophecy said specifically that Elijah would come and he would come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And the period about which Luke is writing, at this time Israel was living through a period of time with no prophets. The prophets were long gone. And they were living at a time with no Messiah, this Messiah that had been promised. And so really they're in a, a period of, of, uh, of delay. They, they, they likely wished that they could either be back at the time when they were listening to God speak through the prophets or the time when the Messiah had come, but, but neither one of them were taking place. And that's where Israel finds itself here in Luke chapter 1. The purpose of Luke's Gospel, as we saw last week, is to show his readers, and particularly Gentiles, that the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. In chapters 1-4, through we see that the Son of Man came. And then we'll see in chapters 5 and following that He came to seek and to save that which was lost. So the first part of of His Gospel is given to the idea that, that the Son of Man came. And this passage that we'll consider this evening speaks of the announcement of Christ's forerunner. That is, that the Savior of the world is coming, but before Him there is going to be one, and we know Him as John, who will prepare the way. And so this passage really sets up the coming of the Lord. And we start to see some comparisons, and we'll see them more next week, but as we see the birth of John and the even the prophecy of John's birth, along with the birth of Jesus and the prophecy of Jesus' birth, they're very similar uh, in, in their accounts. So let me read our text for us this evening, beginning in chapter 1 with verse 5. This is the Word of God. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense, Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. And he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah said to the angel, How will I know this for certain? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. 
The angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their proper time. The people were waiting for Zacharias and were wondering at his delay in the temple. But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. When the days of his priestly service were ended, he went back home. After these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant and she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. God is going to bring about what He wants in His own way. God is going to bring about what He wants in His own way. And that's, I think, what this passage is about. We are introduced to the couple in verses 5-7, through and we're also introduced to their sorrow, that they are without child. The couple's name is, the couple's name is Zechariah and Elizabeth, or as the text says there, Zacharias, just another form of the same name. I'm going to refer to him as Zechariah. We're introduced to him in verse 5, and he was a Levite. He was uh, a priest who served at the temple. And keep in mind that the people of Israel this time are still under the Old Testament law. Jesus had not come at this point, and so he had not abolished the Old Testament law. He had not fulfilled the Old Testament law. And so they're still under it. That's why they're still serving in the temple. And we learn that he's of the division of Abijah in First Chronicles 23 and 24. Uh, when they had all these priests that were set up, uh, they decided that they would set it up into 24 different divisions. And, uh, and Zechariah was from one of these divisions. Well, not only was Zechariah a Levite, but we learned that Elizabeth was also a Levite in the second part of verse 5. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So she also was a Levite. And so you have this couple who comes from a great family line, and also, verse 6, are, are uh, very godly. They are both righteous in the sight of God. And they walk blamelessly in all the commandments and require, requirements of the Lord. It doesn't mean they're perfect, certainly, but it means that, that they walk uprightly. They're like the person that is talked about in Psalm 1. That they, they uh, walk, walk uprightly. But in verse 7, we see their disgrace. They had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both advanced in years. So here we really have a, a threefold uh, detrimental uh, description of this couple. First, they had no child. This was, this was a sign of disgrace. It, it actually was a sign for many people of God's disfavor. That God wasn't looking down on them with favor. The second thing is that she was barren. That she could have no children. And that was clear because they had been married for so long, apparently, and they still had no children. And then thirdly, look at the end of the verse, and they were both advanced in years. And this phrase, advanced in years, is used in Genesis 18.11 to describe Abraham and Sarah when they were in their late 90s, when the angel came to visit him, and, and, uh, and it describes her as being old and advanced in years. Now, this doesn't mean that Zechariah and Elizabeth are that old, as old as Abraham and Sarah, but it does mean that she's beyond her reproductive years. That, that Those days are over. And she, like 
Sarah was doubly dead with regard to childbearing. She was barren and she was past the age of childbearing. And so, in effect, or, or at least at first glance, there was no hope for them. As far as a family line continuing through them, there was no hope. They had no children. Elizabeth was unable to have children and they were too old to have children at this point, even if she weren't barren. But then, Gabriel comes to visit them. Verses 8-17, through 17, the appearance or the visit by Gabriel. He appears to Zechariah in the temple. Every six months, these priests, uh, according to their division, would serve in the temple. So, his division, he's from the division of Abijah, he would serve twice a year. And for one week at a time. Everybody in his division would take all the responsibilities of the temple. Now, all the priests would come at the, at the festival times and they would be required to help out during that time. But they also had one additional week or two additional weeks per year in which they were responsible to care for the temple. And so this time in which the angel appears to Zechariah was during his specific week of service. And he wasn't doing just any ordinary service. Look at verse 9. According to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. In order to see who would provide services inside the temple, they would draw lots. This was a special special privilege that was given to specific priests. Not every priest could do this. In fact, uh, Historians believe that there were between 300 and 800 priests in each division. And as you can imagine, you're not going to have 300 to 800 priests inside the temple all at one time. So they had other responsibilities outside the temple. And so what they would do in order to determine who would go into the temple, which was the special privilege, is they would draw lots. And they would see who would... uh, and uh, Cast lots, I should say. I'm thinking draw straws. But cast lots in order to see who would go into the temple. And it's determined that, that Zechariah was... This was his time. Now, now think of it. If there are 300 to 800 priests and they only can serve in the temple two times per year, then it's likely that, that there would be priests who would go an entire lifetime without ever going into the temple. That, that likely... In, in a generation, there would only be about a hundred of those priests within your division that would go inside the temple. And, and so that means that there are between 200 and 700 who do not go into the temple at all. And yet, and yet here, Zechariah has this special privilege to go into the temple. The fact that he was chosen by Lot tells us that this was not a chance. Just like the birth of John is not going to be a chance. That the that the angel comes to him at this specific time when he is at really the pinnacle of his career, so to speak. He's burning incense inside the temple. And outside, verse 10, there's a group of Jews praying. Then verse 11, Gabriel, this angel, appears to him at the right side of the altar. And as we can imagine, verse 12, Zechariah was afraid. And so the angel calms him down in verse 13. And then in verses 13 through 17 announces John's birth. Notice verse 13. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard. 
Your petition has been heard. Now, what kind of petition is Gabriel talking about? It could be the petition of that, that's going on right now. Who, who's praying at the current time in which the angel is talking to him? Right? All these Jews are standing outside the temple, actually probably in the outer courts of the temple, praying at this time. And they would be praying likely, because they knew the Old Testament prophets, they would be praying for the redemption of Israel. And so it could be that the angel is saying, listen, your prayer, your prayer collectively has been heard, and now Israel is going to be redeemed. And obviously that would be through the Christ. Or it could be that, that it is a prayer that Zechariah and Elizabeth had made a hundred times and more throughout their marriage to have a child. And likely at this time, because they are old and advanced in years, they're not praying this prayer anymore, but it's a prayer that God hadn't forgotten about. And I think that's likely what's taking place. Now, some commentators argue that it's both. He's answering both prayers at the same time. Uh, and and we, could, we could quibble over that. But I, I, I tend to think, based on the context, it seems like what the, the angels are going to talk about from here on out is the birth of John. Your petition has been heard. Now, God's going to grant to you a son. And so it seems as if the angel is responding to, uh, on behalf of God, responding to Zechariah and Elizabeth's prayer for a child. In verse 13, he tells him what the name is going to be at the end of the verse. And you will give him the name John. The name John means the Lord has been gracious. And this name would have reminded them of God's grace to them in their later years in life. And the original readers of this Gospel would have known who John the Baptist is, but now they see what his birth was all about. His conception is really miraculous. The response is going to be joy, according to verse 14. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. And that's actually what happens. Look at verse 25. This is the way, this is Elizabeth singing praise to God, really. This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when He looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. So the angel says there will be joy and gladness. And here we see Elizabeth with joy and, and gladness. Verse 15, we see the position and character of the child. The position of the child is that he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will be great in the sight of the Lord. Turn to Luke chapter 7. Because we just we see just how great he is, you know. If we wanted to put him on a list of who's who among the Old Testament prophets and included him on that list, do you realize that John the Baptist would be at the top of that list? I mean, we could list all these great Old Testament prophets, but John actually, prior to the coming of Christ, was the greatest of all the prophets. Look at chapter seven, verse twenty-eight. This is Jesus speaking. He says, I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. There is no one greater than John. And we'll see the reason why when we see John's mission back in chapter 1. You can turn back there. Uh, before we get to his mission, we need to see what kind of responsibility he has that that the angel, much like Samson's parents uh, were told that they that he could not drink wine or any tor- any any sort of thing from the vineyard. 
Here they say something very similar in verse 15, middle of verse, and he will drink no wine or liquor. Now, many scholars believe that this might be a Nazarite vow where he's saying, you know, that the parents are supposed to make sure that he sticks closely to this vow, but the text never mentions anything about him not being able to cut his hair. So more more likely, John has a unique position, different than the Nazarite vow. He's not exactly a priest like his father is, um, but he has this unique position. Whatever the case, he's not supposed to take any wine or strong drink. His character is seen at the end of verse 15, that he will be, and this is amazing, filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. Filled with the Holy Spirit while in his mother's womb. Now, now, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? My understanding of the filling of the Spirit, particularly when Paul uses that phrase, has to do with being controlled by the Spirit. To be controlled by the Spirit. That is being complicit to the work of the Spirit as He works through this work, His Word. So, how is it that a fetus, an infant child even, could, could be complicit to the Word of God? Now, there are others who suggest that this means that he was regenerated while in the womb. And I just don't see uh, how this could be. Uh, It doesn't seem to make sense with the rest of Scripture. But in order to think about this, I think it would be helpful for us to think about how Luke uses this phrase, being filled with the Spirit, in the rest of his Gospel. And he uses it in two primary ways, according to Joel Green, a commentator. He says, first, he uses it in the way... That, that he means a continuous state of being empowered and directed by the Spirit. To be empowered and directed by the Spirit. And the second way that Luke uses this phrase is to mean a special dispensation of the Spirit for a particular task or role. And here it seems like the first idea is in view, that, that the Holy Spirit is empowering him and directing him even from the time in which he's in the womb to... To, uh, to, to be directed toward the task that God has given to him. And it's necessary for John to be Spirit-empowered before birth because it shows that his ministry is authorized by the Spirit. That he is not someone who just kind of comes of his own origin or is a, kind of a self-made individual, but rather he is a prophet sent by God. And so, so, so much so that, that he is... He is uh, empowered and directed by the Holy Spirit of God Himself. In other words, the Spirit is directing every part of His life all the way back to His conception. So what makes John so great? Why is it that he is among all people who are born of women, why is John greater than all? We, we have the answer to that in verses 16 and 17, and it is His mission. His mission. And He will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is He who will go, and here's what makes Him so great. He will go as a forerunner before Him in the Spirit, that is the the Messiah, in the Spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. The reason that He is great, as verse 15 says, is because He had greater revelation than any of the Old Testament prophets. He has, we could say, fuller revelation. He now understands things more clearly than all the prophets. And he serves as the immediate forerunner of the Messiah. Notice the result of his ministry is that he will 
verse 17, in the middle of the verse, He will turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous. There's a lot of discussion among scholars on what this means. It could be that disobedient fathers will receive children's hearts. That is, the hearts that are so believing and and trusting that they will start, these fathers will start to live righteously. It could be that. It could be that the disobedient will listen to the righteous. Like children listen to their fathers, so the disobedient will listen to the righteous. Whatever the case, in both of those ideas, you have salvation taking place. You have a process of regeneration. Third option is that it could be that the fathers, that is the patriarchs, look now with disgust on their descendants, their children, so to speak. But now with the coming of John and Jesus, both in the line of Israel, that's going to change. And I think that's really what what is taking place. That now the hearts of the fathers will look with favor now on their descendants. And John is going to be a very important uh, cog in that wheel that, that it brings that brings that about. Whatever the case, John's main task will be to prepare the way of the Lord. That's what the end of the verse says. So as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And obviously we know what John's ministry is all about. He goes down into the wilderness and he pre- preaches a gospel of faith and repentance. And he starts to call people. He starts to baptize people into uh, uh, into saving faith, or as a result of their saving faith. So here's the here's the announcement by the angel. Surprising, shocking, that a couple who had been barren and now are beyond childbearing years, an angel comes to them, comes to him specifically, and tells him that Elizabeth is going to have a child and that he's going to be the forerunner of Christ. But notice in verses 18 through 23 we have the unbelief of Zechariah, the unbelief of Zechariah. Look at his question here in verse 18. Zechariah said to the angel, "How will I know this for certain? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years." Now when we look at a question like this and then a statement to follow, we think there's not really anything. It seems kind of harmless. But we know that it's not harmless because of how the angel responds. He responds by rebuking him and saying, because you did not believe me. So we know that in this question there is unbelief. Now look at this question, John's question, compared to the question that's made by by Mary. Remember, Mary has a very similar story that takes place. An angel appears to her and says, you know, that, that you're going to bear a son. He's going to be conceived in your womb even though you're not going to be married, you're going to be a virgin. Verse 34, notice her question. Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? So what is the difference between John's question, which I hope you understand the rest of the story with regard to Mary, is she does not get rebuked. In fact, her her question is answered. So what's the difference between John's question where he gets rebuked and, and is charged with unbelief and Mary's question, which sounds very similar? I think the difference is that her question was asked in faith. Look back up to verse 18 because I think Zechariah's question is he's effectively asking for a sign. Look what he says. How will I know this for certain? So, in other words, show me proof that this is going to happen. And the reason I know that he's thinking about himself and how this can't be possible 
that he is he is actually responding in unbelief is because of how the Greek is laid out in this in this verse. Now, in a Greek uh, translation, you can see the emphasis that the the writer puts on specific words. And the way that the writers do that in the Greek language is they put the most important word at the very beginning of the sentence. So when they want to put a word with emphasis, they put it at the beginning, even if it doesn't make sense as far as the flow for us. So for, for this verse, it says, how will I know this for certain? Zechariah said this, is, this would be a literal translation. And then the next part would be, I for am an old man. See, it doesn't make sense in our language, and that's why the English translators corrected there. But, but I actually is emphatic. It's saying... He's effectively saying, how will I know this for certain? For I am old and my wife is advanced in years. See, he's making a statement to the angel that this cannot be possible. So how can I know this for certain? Show me a sign that that it would even be possible that a couple who are beyond their childbearing years, at least the wife is, right? Uh, the husband never was in those years. But, but, But how can this be possible? See, his question, different from Mary's, was asked in doubt. And he demanded a sign. Now, this is one thing, if this were an angel coming to an unbeliever, but this is a believer. This is someone who trusted in God and was looking for his promised Redeemer. And Zechariah had some specific and great privileges that should have helped him understand that this was real. First of all, he knew the Scriptures. Certainly, he must have known of the story of Abraham and Sarah. And he must have known that God had already done this once before. And he brought a child to a couple who had been old. Verse 6 tells us that he was a blameless man. And he walked blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. So he was a godly man. We also know that that he is in the temple on the most important day of his life. And he recognized that this was a very important part of of Israel's life. That is, making sacrifices to God. The idea of burning incense was they would make sure that the incense was continually burning inside the temple uh, prior to the offering of sacrifices. And the fourth thing, the fourth reason why he had these great privileges and should have believed is that he was confronted by a supernatural creature who revealed himself as such. He should have known that this was a message from God, and yet he's saying, How can I know this for sure? This can't happen to me. I'm old, and my wife's advanced in years. She's beyond childbearing years. And I think we, like Zechariah, are privileged with great revelation from God as well. And yet we will doubt Him on occasion, won't we? There are times when we question whether or not He can follow through on His promise, whether or not He can accomplish His purposes in the way that He said He would. Well, this conversation with the angel results in a long delay. That is outside these people are praying and they're waiting for Zechariah to come out and they knew about how long it took for a priest to go in and come back out and in this case he's taking a lot longer than normal and that wasn't a good thing for a priest now certainly they didn't want to rush and hurry up and do the incense and run out but they also didn't want to hang around they didn't want to be presumptuous as if just 
kind of uh, presume upon God's grace lest they be they, they find themselves dead, right? Because God was was not playing games with his worship. So maybe the crowd outside was concerned for him and that's why uh, in verse 21, they were wondering at the end of the verse, they were wondering at his delay. Well, remember, Zechariah's question is, how will I know for certain? In other words, show me a sign that this is going to happen. And and do you know what the, the angel does? He gives him a sign. Look at verse 22. Uh, actually, we see this in verse 20. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. So, it was going to be nine months and however long it took him to fulfill the rest of his service. So, a little more than nine months, he was going to be mute, unable to speak. And that's exactly what happens. Verse 22, he comes out and he's unable to speak. He's trying to explain to them what happens, but he can't do it with his mouth because he can't talk. And apparently, he's not only... Mute, but according to verse 62, he appears to be deaf as well. When John is born, they're asking him what he should be named. And verse 62 reads, And they made signs to his father as to what he wanted him called. So it sounds like he's not only mute, unable to speak, but he's also deaf. And he's going to be that way until after John is named. Well, verse 24 and 25, we have the joy of Elizabeth. After these days, Elizabeth his wife became pregnant and she kept herself in seclusion. Now, remember that that this was disgraceful. That's why she says at the end of verse 25, to take away my disgrace. In other words, all these years that I've been married and haven't been able to have a child, it has been a disgrace for me. But now God's taking away my disgrace by giving me a child, by making me, allowing me to be pregnant. So apparently... After she becomes pregnant, she secludes herself for five months. And so much so that even her close relative Mary didn't know about it until Gabriel told her. It's not clear why she went into hiding this, these first five months of her pregnancy, but it seems to be that she wanted to uh, stay in seclusion so that she would not come out into the public until she was showing until it was clear that she was pregnant and that no one could question it. In other words, there was not a chance for a person to to uh, say, give statements of disgrace to Elizabeth because she was in hiding while it, it wasn't clear if she was pregnant or not. She couldn't afford... Uh, she couldn't bear to suffer public disgrace in public and so she stayed in her home and there was no possible way that she could suffer disgrace there. But when she came out into the public, then it was clear that she was pregnant and the disgrace was gone. Notice verse 25, she sees herself as one who is no longer disgraced and as one who has received favor from God. This is the way the Lord has dealt with me, she says, in the days when He looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. God will fulfill His promise in His own way. God will fulfill His promise in His own way. And our job is simply to trust Him. And I say simply, but it's actually very difficult to do. We need to recognize two things this evening in application. First, God's Word can be trusted. God's Word can be trusted because He is powerful 
to follow through on His promises. It should not be hard to see that God is faithful to what He says. Let me illustrate this by showing you the opposite. Have you ever seen the parents with the empty threats that they make in the grocery store? You know, the kid that's screaming at the top of their lungs because he wants something and the parent says, if you don't stop, I'm going to, and then whatever they say, and then it never happens. The kid just goes right on doing it and eventually they get the toy that they want. Okay, or the parents who can't get their child to come home with them, and so they say, bye, I'm leaving without you. Okay, those threats carry no weight because they're not acted upon. I'm not suggesting that you know, parents should act upon the leaving the kid behind every once in a while just to make sure that the kids know that they're real. I'm not advocating that because it could cause eternal damage to the person like what happened to me when I was a kid. I'm not <laughs> just kidding. Uh, I, I don't think I was ever left anywhere. Um, But our words have power, don't they? But they only have as much power... uh, They only have power when we are true to our word. Empty threats are of no use. And so if a child doesn't believe the words of his parents, well, some of the blame can be put on the parents because they have relinquished their power. They have given up their power to the child because they didn't act on their word. But that is not God. God is not empty of power when it comes to His Word. He is powerful because His Word has never failed. He, he has always followed through on His promises. The ones He hasn't followed through on, He will. God is powerful because He follows through on His Word. And if we fail to trust God when He promises something, it's not because God gave empty threats. It's because our faith is weak. For Zechariah, he couldn't believe that God would do this because he was old and his wife was barren and she was beyond the age of bearing a child. Sarah was the same way in Genesis 18. She couldn't believe God because it had been 24 years since God had promised to bring Abraham a son. Still nothing. The only son that they had was through her mistress, her, uh, her maid, Still no son. And what's worse for Sarah is that she's beyond childbearing years. And in in essence, Zechariah and Sarah were ascribing weakness to God, saying, God, we don't trust You. We don't think You can follow through on this promise. And what God is saying here is, I am not weak, but I am all-powerful. And I am able to accomplish exactly what I want at the time that I want it because I control all of nature. And even when nature and the odds, so to speak, are stacked against God, He still can accomplish what He wants. It's hard for us to trust in God's power fully because we can't see it all at once. We only see portions of God's power. We only see it in finite ways. This is why theologian A.H. Strong likens God's power to wind, water, and fire. He says that that those things, wind, water, and fire, have great power. But we don't know the extent of their power because we haven't seen the extent of their power. We have seen some pretty devastating effects from wind, water, and fire. But we haven't seen all of the devastating effects that they could bring upon us. And that's the same way it is with God. We only see a portion of His power, don't we? 
We see His power, but not in full display. And so, when things like this that come up that don't seem to make sense, we are quick to question it because we're not sure that it could possibly happen. God is powerful because He always follows through on His promises. We can second-guess Him, but He will do what He pleases in the way that He wants. For Zechariah, it would be at least nine months before he would hear and speak again. And I think the words that would ring through his head over and over again were his last words. How can I be certain? For I am old and my wife is advanced in years. The next words that would be out of his mouth would not be until after John was born. God's Word can be trusted. And so here's our responsibility in all this. And it is simply... We must trust God. We must trust God. Now, I say it's simple because the concept is very simple. But it's very hard to do, isn't it? Trusting God seems very easy, but trusting God is effectively trusting His Word. I don't don't know about you, but I find it hard at times to trust God's Word. I mean, is what God has said true? Will God really follow through on His promises when I do it according to His plan? You see, when we, we state the questions those that way, well, yeah, God is going to follow through on His promise. Yes, God is true to His Word. We, without hesitation, we agree, right? But what about when God's Word makes a demand on our lives? For example, in Colossians 3, verses 23 to 24, says, work heartily unto the Lord and not unto men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance. See, now we have a specific command that makes it difficult for us to believe that God is powerful to do what He wants to do because now we have to do something that's difficult. We have to do our job as unto the Lord and not unto our boss, in some cases our wicked boss our unfeeling boss. And so we make excuses for passages like this. You know, I know the Bible says that, but, you know, I can cut a few corners at work. No one's looking. The boss lets us get away with these things. So it's okay if I don't give my best at work. It's no big deal if I fudge those certification requirements. See, now when we get down to specific commands that God has given us, it's a little bit different than answering the question at the beginning. Is God true to His Word? Is God powerful to do what He said He will do? See, when we ask those questions, we say yes, but then when we look at specific commands, it's a little bit different. How about this one? James 1.3, Count it all joy, my brethren, when you fall into various kinds of trials. Well, I know the Bible says that, that I'm supposed to have joy in my trials, but... I think I have a right to grumble in this case. I was mistreated. I was, I was in a desperate state. And if anyone else were in my shoes, they would not be able to find joy in this trial either. So, I can grumble a little bit, can I? You see, we're not much different from Zechariah. Yeah, God hasn't appeared to us through one of His angels told us that we were going to have a child late in life. But as far as believing whether God 
is true or not, we are very much like Him. We have a clearer revelation than Zechariah had. Now, you might think, well, uh, an angel in person is the clearest revelation there would be. But actually, the Scriptures teach that there is no clearer, clearer revelation than the written Word of God. That's why with the story of um, Abraham and uh, uh, Lazarus, where you have uh, the rich man and Lazarus, excuse me, where you have the, the rich man in hell asking for his, someone to go back to his brothers to rise from the dead and tell them about the truth of the Gospel. And, and what does Abraham say? It doesn't really matter. Because they wouldn't believe. They have Moses and the prophets. They have the written Word of God. That's a clearer revelation than if someone rose from the dead. And what I'm saying to you is that we have a clearer revelation than Zechariah. Clearer than an angel standing here in our congregation. And it tells us exactly what God wants us to do. And we say, how can I be certain that's going to happen? How can I be certain that if I have joy in this trial, that's going to help me in any way? How can I be certain that I should work heartily as unto the Lord when my boss is, quite frankly, a jerk? How can I? You see, in, in the process, we have doubted God. Zechariah, he sought for a sign. And, and, and we have a clearer revelation. Is it possible that trusting God is much harder to do than we say it is. It's very simple to understand. Trust God. You hear it all the time. It's often an application that I bring when, when we look at the Scriptures. Trust God. But it's very difficult to do, isn't it? But God can be trusted. And God must be trusted. Because He is always true to His Word. And so we must trust in Him alone. And we do that by trusting in His Word. Go to His Word. Find out what He wants you to do and do it. And if it's too hard for you to, to understand, too hard for you to follow, I can't do this. It seems very straightforward for me to do this, but I can't. You need to go to God in prayer and ask for His help. Go to someone else whom you respect. Someone that can encourage you along those same lines. When it comes down to trusting God in our daily lives, it is very difficult. But we have the Holy Spirit of God in us that helps us to see that the Word of God is true and He also prompts our heart to believe God and to obey God. And at the same time, He is interceding for us. And we also have Christ who is at the right hand of the throne of God who is also always interceding for us. And so we have a lot of things in our favor. We have the best revelation. We have the, the Holy Spirit of God within us. We have Jesus at the right hand of God. God has given us every sort of privilege that we need to accomplish what He wants. And now our job is just to trust Him. And to trust Him by trusting in His Word. Let's pray. Father, we... Uh, just thought earlier tonight through, uh, through a song that was played that we should trust and obey. And and uh, seems like a very simple song to think about and to understand. 
but we admit that it is very difficult for us to do. Lord, we can, we can uh, cheer with all of the other believers who stand up and say that You are true and You are right and Your Word is best. But then when it gets down to it in our daily lives, we think very little of Your Word. We spend very little time in it. We spend very little time meditating on it, memorizing it, talking about it to others, reflecting on its truth, obeying it. Sometimes we, frankly, don't obey it because we don't know what it says. Other times we don't obey it because we just can't believe that that would be the way that You would want us to go. Our human reasoning often gets in the way. And so, Lord, we ask for Your forgiveness and ask for You to to, uh, recalibrate our minds. Help us to get back to where we ought to be with regard to our our uh, understanding and our love for Your Word. Lord, may it be our great delight like the psalmist. May we find great joy in learning about it and living it and also encouraging others to do the same. Lord, we, we need Your help to trust You more. We don't want to be like the world who is tossed and, and turned by the, by the winds We want to be like the tree planted by the river of water that yields its fruit in its season. And when the winds blow, it does not not get crushed. It does not get torn down. We want to be like that, and we know that only can happen as we come to know Your Word more fully and to obey it. Lord, it would do us no good to learn Your Word and not obey it. We need to be doers of Your Word, so help us to do that. We need Your Spirit. We need... We need the the finished work of Jesus Christ. We need Your favor. So we pray that You would continually pursue us and pour out Your favor upon us. In Jesus' name, Amen.